Chapter sixty four of John Cordigate by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter sixty four. Conclusion. The web of our story has now been woven. The piece is finished, and it is only necessary that the loose threads should be collected, so that there may be no unravelling. In such chronicles as this, something, no doubt, might be left to the imagination without serious injury to the story. But the reader, I think, feels a deficiency when, through tedium or coldness, the writer omits to give all the information which he possesses. Among the male personages of my story, Bagwax should perhaps be allowed to stand first. It was his energy and devotion to his peculiar duties which, after the verdict, served to keep alive the idea that that verdict had been unjust. It was through his ingenuity that Judge Bramber was induced to refer the inquiry back to Scotland Yard and in this way to prevent the escape of Crinkit and Euphemia Smith. Therefore we will first say a word as to Bagwax and his history. It was rumoured at the time that Sir John Joram and Mr. Brown, having met each other at the club after the order for Cordigate's release had been given, and discussing the matter with great interest, united in giving praise to Bagwax. Then Sir John told the story of those broken hopes, of the man's desire to travel, and of the faith and honesty with which he sacrificed his own aspirations for the good of the poor lady whose husband had been so cruelly taken away from her. Then, as it was said at the time, an important letter was sent from the Home Office to the Postmaster-General, giving Mr. Bagwax much praise, and suggesting that a very good thing would be done to the colony of New South Wales if that ingenious and skilful master of postmarks could be sent out to Sydney with a view of setting matters straight in the Sydney office. There was then much correspondence with the colonial office, which did not at first care very much about Bagwax, but at last the order was given by the Treasury, and Bagwax went. There were many tears shed on the occasion at Apricot Villa. Jemima Curlydown thought that she also should be allowed to see Sydney, and was in favour of an immediate marriage with this object but Bagwax felt that the boisterous ocean might be unpropitious to the delights of a honeymoon, and Mr. Curdedown reminded his daughter of all the furniture which would thus be lost. Bagwax went as a gay bachelor, and spent six happy months in the bright colony. He did not effect much, as the delinquent who had served Crinket in his base purposes had already been detected and punished before his arrival. But he was treated with extreme courtesy by the Sydney officials, and was able to bring home with him a treasure in the shape of a newly discovered manner of tying mail-bags. So that when the Sydney Intelligencer boasted that the great English professor who had come to instruct them all had gone home, instructed, there was some truth in it. He was married immediately after his return, and Jemima his wife has the advantage, in her very pretty drawing-room, of every shilling that he made by the voyage. My readers will be glad to hear that soon afterwards he was appointed Inspector-General of Postmarks, to the great satisfaction of all at the post-office. Footnote 1. I hope my friends in the Sydney post-office will take no offence should this story ever reach their ears. I know how well the duties are done in that office, and between ourselves I think that Mr. Bagwax's journey was quite unnecessary. One of the few things which Caldergate did before he took his wife abroad was to look after Dick Shand. It was manifest to all concerned that Dick could do no good in England. His yellow trousers, and the manners which accompanied them, 
were not generally acceptable in merchants' offices and such-like places. He knew nothing about English farming, which, for those who have not learned the work early, is an expensive amusement rather than a trade by which bread can be earned. There seemed to be hardly a hope for Dick in England, but he had done some good among the South Sea Islanders. He knew their ways and could manage them. He was sent out, therefore, with a small capital to be junior partner on a sugar estate in Queensland. It need hardly be said that the small capital was lent to him by John Cordygate. There he took steadily to work, and it is hoped by his friends that he will soon begin to repay the loan. The uncle, aunt, and cousins at Babington soon renewed their intimacy with John Cordygate, and became intimate with Hester. The old squire still turned up his nose at them, as he had done all his life, calling them Boeotians, and reminding his son that Suffolk had always been a silly county. But the Babingtons, one and all, knew this, and had no objection to be accounted thick-headed as long as they were acknowledged to be prosperous, happy, and comfortable. It had always been considered at Babington that young Cordigate was brighter and more clever than themselves, and yet he had been popular with them as a cousin of whom they ought to be proud. He was soon restored to his former favour, and, after his return from the continent, spent a fortnight at the hall with his wife very comfortably. Julia, indeed, was not there, nor Mr. Smirky. Among all their neighbours and acquaintances, Mr. Smirky was the last to drop the idea that there must have been something in that story of an Australian marriage. His theory of the law on the subject was still incorrect. The Queen's pardon, he said, could not do away with the verdict, and therefore he doubted whether the couple could be regarded as man and wife. He was very anxious that they should be married again, and with great good nature offered to perform the ceremony himself either at Plumcum Pippins or even in the drawing-room at Foking. "'Suffolk to the very backbone!' was the remark of the Cambridgeshire squire when he heard of this very kind offer. But even he at last came round, under his wife's persuasion, when he found that the paternal mansion was likely to be shut against him unless he yielded. Hester's second tour with her husband was postponed for some weeks, because it was necessary that her husband should appear as a witness against Crinket and Euphemia Smith. They were tried also at Cambridge, but not before Judge Bramber. The woman never yielded an inch. When she found out how it was going with her, she made fast her money, and with infinite pluck resolved that she would endure with patience whatever might be in store for her, and wait for better times. When put into the dock, she pleaded not guilty, with a voice that was audible only to the jailer standing beside her, and after that did not open her mouth during the trial. Crinket made a great effort to be admitted as an additional witness against his comrade, but having failed in that, pleaded guilty at last. He felt that there was no hope for him with such a weight of evidence against him, and calculated that his punishment might thus be lighter, and that he would save himself the cost of an expensive defence. In the former hope he was deceived, as the two were condemned to the same term of imprisonment. When the woman heard that she was to be confined for three years with hard labour, her spirit was almost broken. But she made no outward sign, and as she was led away out of the dock she looked round for Cordigate to wither him with the last glance of her reproach. But Cordigate, who had not beheld her misery without some pang at his heart, had already left the court. Judge Bramber, 
never opened his mouth upon the matter to a single human being. He was a man who, in the bosom of his family, did not say much about the daily work of his life, and who had but few friends sufficiently intimate to be trusted with his judicial feelings. The Secretary of State was enabled to triumph in the correctness of his decision, but it may be a question whether Judge Bramber enjoyed the triumph. The matter had gone luckily for the Secretary. But how would it have been had Crinkett and the woman been acquitted? How would it have been had Cordigate broken down in his evidence and been forced to admit that there had been a marriage of some kind? No doubt the accusation had been false. No doubt the verdict had been erroneous. But the man had brought it upon himself by his own egregious folly, and would have had no just cause for complaint had he been kept in prison till the second case had been tried. It was thus that Judge Bramber regarded the matter, but he said not a word about it to any one. When the second trial was over, Cordigate and his wife started for Paris, but stayed a few days on their way with William Bolton in London. He and his wife were quite ready to receive Hester and her husband with open arms. "'I tell you fairly,' said he to Cordigate, "'but when there was a doubt I thought it better that you and Hester should be apart. You would have thought the same had she been your sister. Now I am only too happy to congratulate both of you that the truth has been brought to light.' On their return, Mrs. Robert Bolton was very friendly, and Robert Bolton himself was at last brought round to acknowledge that his convictions had been wrong. But there was still much that stuck in his throat. Why did John Cordigate pay twenty thousand pounds to those persons when he knew that they had hatched a conspiracy against himself? This question he asked his brother William over and over again, and never could be satisfied with any answer which his brother could give him. Once he asked the question of Cordigate himself. "'Because I felt that in honour I owed it to them,' said Cordigate. "'And perhaps a little too, because I felt that, if they took themselves off at once, your sister might be spared something of the pain which she has suffered.' But still it was unintelligible to Robert Bolton that any man in his senses should give away so large a sum of money with so slight a prospect of any substantial return. Hester often goes to see her mother, but Mrs. Bolton has never been at Foking, and probably never will again visit that house. She is a woman whose heart is not capable of many changes, and who cannot readily give herself to new affections. But, having once owned that John Cordigate is her daughter's husband, she now alleges no further doubt on the matter. She writes the words, Mrs. John Cordigate, without a struggle and does take delight in her daughter's visits. When last I heard from Foking, Mrs. John Cordigate's second boy had just been born. End of chapter 64 End of John Cordigate by Anthony Trollope